online at mn90.org. Boy, that story sounds a little like something Al Bat might do is chase down squirrels and, you know, try to protect them and give them a home. Does that sound like you, Al? I guess so, except uh, the part about shooting the red ones. Oh, you would <laughs> you would no. keep them all, uh, all for pets. Yeah. Well, that's quite a story. I didn't realize that uh, there was an overpopulation of of gray squirrels. Kind of interesting. And have you found that one is nicer than the other and more playful? Yeah, I would say definitely the gray squirrels have a uh, a personality that uh, mixes better with humans, perhaps, than little red squirrels. Red squirrels are very feisty. I walked by a midden the other day, which is a pile of cones in this case that the little squirrel, red squirrel, sets aside. And he was calling me. I don't speak squirrel, but I know he was <laughs> calling me every bad name you could ever think of. And uh, he just was not happy to, to have me there. So they're the smallest of our uh, tree squirrels that we have here, but they are certainly the most aggressive. And I know some people like them because they have... Um, yeah, quite a personality, and then others don't like them because they fear they're going to get into their house or uh, buildings and chew up things uh, and do that sort of thing. But uh, they are rodents, I guess that's what they do. But they're um, they're sure cute, the little red ones. You know, they're not. Uh, you look at them and you say, well, they're not much bigger than a chipmunk till you see a chipmunk and red squirrel side by side, and then the red squirrel looks mammoth. But <laughs> he is uh, quite a bit smaller than the gray squirrel, and then he's uh, vastly smaller than the fox squirrel. But uh, pretty cool to see. Do I, we have I, many I like red squirrels around here? I guess I mostly see gray ones in my yard, too. Yeah, it used to be they say, well, you will find the red ones where you have a conifer woods mm-hmm. or a conifer forest, and they, they say, oh, yeah, you know, you go up north and you find them up there. But I have them in my yard, so uh, I see them pretty much everywhere anymore. So they have just, uh, I, I don't know if they've expanded. Well, they certainly have, I guess, expanded their territory because I didn't see them that much when I was a kid, and and I lived in the woods. But uh, we've planted a lot more evergreens around, and maybe that's uh, to their liking, too, because they do like the seeds from the cones. Did you see the cool picture I sent you? One of our listeners, Rich in Mankato, his brother was driving to work, I guess, at 4.30 a.m., and it was Glenwood and, what was it, Glenwood and, now I forgot. But there was a picture of the the, uh, street signs and then a stop sign and on top was some sort of I think it looks like an owl and and Rich just commented that it looks eerie so I want to know what that (laughs) is because it's kind of cool I was thinking a snowy owl but I guess I'm wrong because you and I chatted a little bit what is that sitting on those signs and it was at the uh, stop sign on the corner of Glenwood and Monks that's right Glenwood and Monks yeah, and it the eyes look dark in the photo, and, and I know at 4.30 in the morning, you know, probably the headlights or street lights, so it, the light certainly could play tricks on me. But the eyes look dark, and the bill looks yellow. There's some brown on it, so I would say it's a barred owl, B-A-R-R-E-D. Uh, that's what it looks like to me. And again, uh, I've taken a lot of photos just like this, so it, it's hard to take photos at 4.30 in the morning. I realize that. Are, are they common in town? Uh, birds they are, are bar- indeed. Oh, they are. Okay, so barred owls. And what kind of sound do they make? So maybe that they would... They do that. Uh, who cooks for you? Who cooks for you all? Okay. And we do see them during the day, so they will hunt both during at night and at day. 
and uh, a lot of folks have sent me uh, photos of them on a oh a shepherd's hook that they have bird oh. feeders hanging from in the yard because they come there to hunt primarily uh, all mice or shrews that sort of thing that would be found under a, a feeder particularly in the winter time when those uh, guys can get under the snow and when they come out the barred owl likes to be there and snatch them for lunch but they are um, they're really cool birds so uh, boy thanks uh, for sending that photo it was cool to see and uh, we didn't have to do a uh, gps to see where it was located no it's, man, it's right on the photo and uh, the bird is sitting uh, the owl is on top of monks avenue 100 it says so so now cool everybody thing. who drives by can look at that stop sign and see if yeah, they can find it. Yeah, boy, they can. If you're out there, you know, maybe at 5, and uh, <laughs> we get a little more light, natural light, and then we can uh, pinpoint it all the more. But if if I were a betting man, which I am not, I would say a barred owl. So it's, uh, But a cool thing to see. As is everything. You know, the other day, and uh, Karen, I'm sure you run into this too, uh, ash seedlings just... Man, those little guys, between them and maple and box elder, they just grow everywhere. And some days I, I think ash seedlings are the biggest weed we have in our yard. Well, I'm thinking they know that the emerald ash borer is on its way. So you know how, how trees, when they feel stressed or something, and then they overproduce seeds? Maybe that's what's happening. They know. They've heard the reports. Emerald ash borer on the way. <laughs> maybe maybe that's it, because I'm, I'm griping about them a little bit. And then I thought, well, man, then the emerald ash borer is going to come and take a lot of my ash trees, and then I'll be complaining about that. <laughs> you know, it's just not making me happy happy. I, I, um, I like ash trees. Uh, what the, the emerald ash borer, the green, white, black, blue, there's a pumpkin ash. I used to have a Marshall seedless ash, which was a lovely tree. There's an autumn purple and a summit, I think, are the trees. They're susceptible to the emerald ash borer. And I know a lot of folks uh, have mountain ash, and we certainly have them here in our yard. Mountain ash, they are not related to all the other ash trees. Yeah, I was going to say they're in a different category of trees. I just talked to somebody, uh, an arborist yesterday, about the emerald ash borer, did an interview that I'm going to be playing sometime this week. But she was talking about how it's probably already where you are. You may just not have seen it because they're actually pretty small. They, I saw what was a tiger, um, a, a six-spotted tiger beetle in my yard, and it was that metallic green, and I thought, oh, oh no, I was I was thinking it was a <laughs> emerald ash borer, and then I brought it inside, and I Googled, and it said that six-spotted spot, six tiger beetle, and, um, you know, obviously not the same one, but when you see those little green things, you say, oh, could that be the emerald ash borer? Well, she told me it's actually smaller than, than a, the, on top of a penny, like less than half of a penny, so they're pretty tiny. Yeah. And I've seen quite a few of those tiger beetles this year. They're one of my favorites, and I saved one. He got in the bird water, and then he's just paddling like crazy, <laughs> but he couldn't get enough traction to get out of it, so I got him out of there. They're, they are so beautiful, and boy, when you say metallic, it's just it's this brightest green color yeah i wish i had a car that color because i thought wow that would really stand out because it's almost holographic where it's sort of you look at it and it has just these neat um, greens and just kind of changes the angle you look at it i just thought they were really pretty i agree with you again as i say they're one of my favorites i boy uh, a lot of folks have been talking to me again about the flocks that they've been seeing and uh, they, you know mostly what i'm seeing is still dame's rocket 
and it's often confused, and it's hard to tell. But if you get up close and look at it, phlox will have five petal flowers, one for each letter, P-H-L-O-X. And Dame's Rocket will have four petals. Well, for the longest time, I thought that those those Dame's Rocket were flocks too and I thought oh how pretty they are all over the woods but uh, I have them out at the lake house and I am actually pulling them up while they're pretty they all got a powdery mildew so terrible the last two years that I and then it spreads to all my plants around the the landscape so I'm actually pulling them up and saying so long they, and you're right, they are beautiful, but they're very invasive yes. and uh, very hard to control. And I think we, uh, I know I do, I have a tendency when I look at a beautiful flower to thinking, oh, you know, what could it hurt? But uh, some of them are very, very aggressive. <laughs> yes. We find that out in purple loose strife and a lot of these other things. My yard was uh, whistling this morning, which was pretty cool. There was a peewee, a oriole, a chickadee, and cardinal all whistling about the same time. Uh, the other day, uh, my wife and I stopped to look at an eastern kingbird that was on a post, a pipeline post, and its uh, scientific name is Tyrannus tyrannus. And Henry David Thoreau wrote, I see at a distance a kingbird pursuing a crow lower down a hill like a satellite revolving around a black planet. And these kingbirds are known for a pugnacious attitude, and they have a fearless defense of territory. Native Americans called the kingbird Little Chief, which I thought was just a perfect name for these little guys. Uh, Gunnar Berg of Albert Lee reported cedar waxwing eating midges by his house. He lives along the lake. And at Arrowhead Park along Freeborn Lake, when I visited there, the ground was feathered with these elegant wax wings feeding on midges. And the midges hummed in flight, making a, oh, a frightening mosquito-like sound, like only much louder than we hear that hum of mosquitoes. So it, it would have been mosquitoes in an Alfred Hitchcock uh, movie, I guess. Because had they been mosquitoes, I'd been a goner, because <laughs> they just covered me. They just flew all over me. And I took some photos of them because I was armed with a camera. And the females, I, I, they're beautiful insects. They only live three to maybe five days. And so these are non-biting insects, these midges. And when they're out, they only have one thing on their mind, that's reproduction. And I could tell the males from the females because the male midges would have feathery antenna, just so beautiful. And for sports fans out there, some might remember the midges. They got kind of famous in baseball because during Game 2 of the 2007 American League Division Series, the Cleveland Indians were battling the New York Yankees, and the midges took the mound to bug Joba Chamberlain, who was the Yankee pitcher. I remember he's out in the mound, and he's covered with these midges, and he can't throw, and and what they did is they rattled him. Well, he just got all shook up. And by the time the Indians took the field, the midges were gone. And when the midges had arrived, invaded, Cleveland was trailing, but they ended up winning the game and the series. So uh, the Cleveland owes a lot to the <laughs> midges, I think. Who knew that I, a bug could throw a game? Yeah, he just, it was always big news because he just, it, this Joba Chamberlain was just a huge man. He's just a great pitcher, and they, they rattled him. He, he didn't care for midges, I guess, that much. 
I walked in White Woods County Park, which is a county park uh, in Freeborn County, and I heard the call of a wood thrush, uh, which isn't uh, very common right here anymore. It sings a flute-like uh, Frito-Lay, and it's it was thrilling to hear and reminded me why I'd fallen in love with birds and birding. It just uh, sent shivers up and down. I watched a doe nurse her fawn in the middle of an open farm field, which seemed like an odd place to do it, but I don't know if the insects were bad or I I don't know what was going on there. And uh, we have a couple things from uh, uh, last week. Uh, Questions about uh, ravens, and I'll touch on that. And the other question was uh, from your cohort there, uh, Barb Lampson. And she wanted to know if birds communicate and become more shrill, agitated before a big storm. Uh, before the big rains on Friday, she noticed that they were super vocal and more shrill around 5 a.m. before we got the heavy rains. Do they predict? Do they warn each other? What's up with this? And great questions. Uh, first, the ravens. A uh, raven is larger than a crow, but that's hard to determine if you just see one. Uh, both are all black, but the crow lacks, uh, the raven's got a huge noggin, just a big head, <laughs> and a gigantic bill compared to the the crow, and it has shaggy throat feathers, like a, I think like a billy goat or something. Almost like a little beard? Yeah, kind of. Okay. And ravens do a real raspy cronk, cronk call. And that's in marked contrast to the cause that we're familiar with, crows, caw. And, caw, caw. And raven, yep, and ravens cronk. And, but they both have varied vocalization. Um, ravens are year-round residents in Minnesota that live mainly in the northeast quarter of the state. And it's one of the earliest birds to nest each year. They either build new nests or repair old ones, and that begins in February. But normal distribution as far south as northern Washington and northern Anoka counties, and that's as far south as I've seen them in Minnesota. In southern, have they ever been in southern Minnesota? You bet. Uh, 1958. One was seen in Blue Earth County, 1959, there was one seen in Martin County, 1920, there was one in Pipestone, but who knows, back in 1920, it could have been somebody had a a pet one that they let go or something. The most recent one was 1976, and that was in Olmsted County. So it's unlikely that it's a raven, you're you're thinking? Maybe a picture would determine that for sure, probably. Yeah, I'd love to see a photo, because I would love to see one. I've I've never seen one here in southern Minnesota. So like I say, I I believe the one I saw was in in Washington County, the northern part was as far south as I've seen them. That's it in southern parts further south in the U.S. I've seen them, but not in Minnesota. And as far as uh, Barb's question, that's great. And crows, uh, man, crows are really good. Uh, they, I have no doubt that they share information where the food is. When they gather together in winter nights when food is hard to get, I, I know they're in there talking about why I, I went out by the mall, and right behind the mall there's this big green dumpster, and they tend to overfill it there, or sometimes they don't close the lid, and the crows will show up there. So some birds certainly do share. A lot of uh, birds share by finding food, again, when one just takes off, and the rest say, hey, where's Herbie going? Well, he's good at finding food. Let's follow him, and away <laughs> they go. 
One of the reasons that they get very noisy early in the morning, uh, scientists call it the dawn chorus, and it starts as early as 4 a.m. and lasts several hours. I know here it's about 4.30 in my yard. They can Birds can sing any time of the day. I mean, they're, they're capable of doing it. It's mostly male birds, and they're attempting to track mates and do they warn sleep other males. At night, I mean, do birds sleep or or no? You wonder sometimes. You go down south; it seems like those mockingbirds sing all night. Yeah. And last night here, there was a catbird singing. I'm not sure what time it was. I didn't look at the clock, but it was uh, darker than the inside of a pants pocket. And the catbirds <laughs> out there singing away. It wasn't wasn't a real spirited song, but he was just like he was tuning up before the big concert. And then this morning, he hit it at 4:30 again. But um, why would you choose sunrise to sing? Uh, there's a number of theories. Uh, one idea is early morning, the light levels are too dim for birds to do much foraging, so it's hard to find food. You might as well sing. Some light levels don't affect social interactions as much. So, you, again, you sing. Some say that morning singing signals to other birds about the strength and vitality of the singer, and singing is such an essential part of bird life, but it's costly in terms of time and energy. So singing loud and proud first thing in the morning tells everyone within hearing distance that you were strong and healthy enough to survive the night, <laughs> and that would be attractive to potential mates. And let your competitors know that you know, you're still the guy. So what about the part, are they more shrill before weather events then? I mean, that's really yeah, what... Yeah, the, the one last thing the scientists said, they, they said that sound travels farther early in the morning. Now they're finding that, you know, it travels just as well at noon as it does at dawn. But I would add that there's a lot more noise later in the day. At 4 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning, it's not so noisy. So I think uh, even more than the song hoping that carries farther. I think it's just easier to hear them. Are you sure? Well, you know, because Barb gets up early all the time, so that's why I was saying, you know, wondering, because she's normally up at that time real early, so that's why she was kind of thinking it sounded louder or something. Yeah, they just, uh, oh, they give great voice to it. And I think it's just quieter, and we hear it better at okay. that time. The other thing about uh, storms, and I think anybody who's a serious feeder of birds in their yard or a um, happy feeder of birds in their yard will see a big shift in bird behavior both before and during a storm. And wild birds uh, could be called nature's barometer because apparently they are impacted by uh, the barometric pressure. So I can tell here when a storm is coming by the feeding frenzy that takes place before the storm arrives. It's as if birds can't get enough food before seeking shelter and riding out that storm. And that's the reason. They want to get in there, get a lot to eat. Then if the storm hits, boy, they can just kind of hunker down and they get uh, that food that they can survive off of. So it, uh, it's... Uh, it's a great question, both of those, and again, I'd love to see a photo of the raven because I want to see one. Um, Jerry Tustinson said, I saw a kingbird on Jayhawk Road in Lyme Township, and I'm thinking that's somewhere on Mankato, I'm not sure. Um, Dustin Demmer of Owatonna has monarch caterpillars. Al Sack of New Richland, monarch caterpillars. Jim Mugley of Albert Lee. 
he saw a uh, indigo bunting, a red-headed woodpecker, an eastern towhee. He saw a prairie flock that was white, and uh, he showed me a picture they'd taken of it, and I'd never seen anything like that. He'd found some Penstemon grandiflorus, and it's one of the showiest of all that species, and this plant is endangered in some states and is typically rare to see in the wild, so that was pretty cool to see that. Uh, Chad Hines of Mankato said I was working from home Monday morning with the windows open and suddenly realized I was listening to a northern parula singing in my woods. This is the latest I've ever had one of those in spring. Uh, Paul Peters of Ceylon was nice enough to call, and he put up a wood duck box, and he said he was looking out, and he got to see the baby wood ducks jumping from their nest box. He said he'd always wanted to see that, never saw it before, and he was uh, pretty happy, but then there was a little bit of uh, sadness because he, he looked in and there were three babies in there. And the mama and the other babies had uh, hit the road, so to speak. So he's wondering what to do, and I said, boy, you know, either uh, raise them yourself or find a rehabber, or uh, if you know kind of where the, the mama went, I would take them down and put them in the water and just hope that she finds them. Uh, at least you're giving the little guys a chance. And I know some folks say, well, that, you know, such a good mom, why would she do that? Well, if, here you are, a mama wood duck, and you got, what, eight or nine little babies on the ground by you. And they're all making noise and scurrying around. You got three of them up in there, and they're not jumping out. Do you jeopardize the lives of the nine you have on the ground? Because they're going to draw attraction predators they're going to hear that and come or do you just take off and in most cases they just take off and it seems hard to us but that's uh, that's the way they survive a new Ritson caller asked how far will a bald eagle fly to find food for eaglets uh, nesting territories vary and of course that'd be according to the availability of food but a successful territory is around a mile in diameter and not you wouldn't want to be over a mile from water. That'd just be silly, and just, you'd just be asking for trouble. I checked with the DNR and the BLM and various research studies, and they all said right around what I just said there. Uh, the one, if you're watching the decora, you know that they're right by a fish hatchery, the decora eagles, so they got a lot of food for them. Although they bring in rabbits, they bring in uh, coots, and they bring in fox. To feed the babies. Do they bring in cats and little dogs too sometimes? You know, I haven't seen any. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I would imagine would... it, I mean, that'd be another, if it was small and they just were out hunting and they saw one, they probably would eat it, maybe? I would think they'd probably have no problem with that whatsoever, but they will bring in, and the foxes they bring in are kits, so they're not uh, adult ones. foxes, okay. so they're young foxes, but uh, Brian Weller of Wasika asked, when the first Canada goose goslings, uh, when do I see them each year? And I typically see them the last week of April. But boy, this year, and Brian said the same thing, I think he, the first ones he saw were May 10th. So it was that that much late over kind of an average year, and just because of that uh, lousy weather, I guess. Uh, lousy would be a good worm for it. Alima Fairchild of Rushford asked, when turkey vultures came to Minnesota, 
boy, I don't know. I know, I remember reading Thomas Sadler Roberts, and he was the godfather of ornithology in Minnesota, and he wrote that they were nesting in southeastern Minnesota in 1932. Now, the impact of DDT on eggshell stability reduced turkey vulture numbers, but the banning of this pesticide has led to a growing population. And she wondered if they and uh, bald eagles have any disputes over nest sites. Uh, Turkey vultures do not build nests, and so they'll scrape a spot in the soil or leaf litter and arrange scraps of vegetation or rotting wood for a nest. They will also sometimes nest in caves or old buildings, and they will use that nest repeatedly if it works out well for them. So they don't uh, have any battles with the eagles over nests. Well, the turkey vulture would lose that one anyway, but they uh, they do not do that. So, But a great question, so I I thank you very much. Yeah, It was nice to hear from Jim Grady of Fairmont. I've known Jim for a while, and I know he listens. And he, um, he's had some health issues that uh, hit all of us sooner or later, I guess, and he's much too young to have them, but we don't get a choice. But uh, he and a group in Fairmont have been building uh, wood duck houses and things. I know this year they built 15 wood duck houses, 25 bluebird tree swallow houses, and uh, 15 or so of those robin, phoebe, barn swallow nest shelf structures. They used to build uh, so many more, uh, but it's just uh, it's hard to, to find people to with the spare time anymore everybody just seems so busy and but they've done so much good through the years given all that stuff to the uh, oh, kids and everything around uh jim also said he's uh saw an american red start and a red-headed woodpecker in a neighborhood's boulevard tree and he said the first of those he'd seen a long time and he said during the snowstorm he looked outside and watched the last snowstorm, not just this week or anything. I watched a gray squirrel on the back steps carrying a long, dead, and very desiccated and flat mouse carcass. I moved to get a closer look, and the squirrel dropped the mouse and ran off. Who knows what it was doing? Maybe there was still a, a little bit of edible stuff on it, that uh, squirrel, you know, and the times are tough when there's winter storms, so they would probably go with anything there. Or they could be just thinking, you know, this would go good in the nest. So they might be just taking it up there for a little bit of warmth because of the fur. Uh, maybe out of curiosity, who really knows? Uh, it's just... Uh, it's just a, an odd thing, and thanks for sharing that. Um, they've made a bunch of nest kits. Uh, I think it's Martin County Conservation Club is the full title for wrens and chick- chickadees, and they gave them to the first graders in the Martin County West School System, and the kids and their dads built the houses, and then the kids painted their houses in colorful designs. Oh, I bet they did. I just, I've just i done some of that, and uh, colorful designs is, uh, is a specialty mm-hmm. of young folks, and we appreciate them. There's some uh, wonderful things. If anybody gets a chance to get over to uh, the Nye Center around Henderson, they have so much going on there just all the time. They uh, 
Oh, they have family kayaking, and they have live animals that they bring in. They do archery lessons. They have a senior learning series about wildlife and history and conservation issues. I know on June 21st, they have an American mammals class. July 19th will be aquatic invasive species. And August 16th will be life on a pond. They also do geocaching, and they involve s'mores in that. So you get to look for stuff and get a little tasty treat. They have a carving club. And they're also doing an annual moth, M-O-T-H, survey on July 28th. And then they have a nature craft night uh, where you learn embroidery with dragonfly designs. If anybody's interested, it's a 507 number, uh, 357-8580, 357-8580. And uh, Nice Center is a beautiful place. Nothing else, just to, to go for a, a walk and hike around a little bit. That always reminds me, Henderson, don't they have the hem- hem- Henderson Hummingbird Hurrah there, too? When is that usually? They do, and it is, uh, boy, I can't recommend it um, highly enough, and I, I don't, I'm not just saying that because that's where I'll be, but it's a, it's a great time, and they've been doing it for, I'm not sure how many years, but it's August 18th. Okay, so it's coming up. Well, I have a hummingbird that's been visiting my little, I've got a red hummingbird uh, feeder, and but I've only noticed one. Could there only be one, or is it kind of like mice? For every one you see, there's 25 more, or could there only be one in the area? And it always flies, gets its gets its drink, and then it goes back under this uh, weeping mulberry. So I don't know if it could have a nest in there or just kind of a safe place. It, and it could just be one. It could be the female on eggs. The male, it wouldn't be hanging oh. around too much. So it, it certainly could just be one, or uh, you could have more. And I see one coming to the feeder here, too, and it's a, it's a female, so I'm hoping she's nesting around here somewhere. Well, now, and it uh, keeps going back to that same tree, and it's a, it's a really well-covered leafy tree. Is that, could be, or is that just a temporary rest stop? between getting food it, it could be either or oh, okay. yeah and uh, boy i have found hummingbird nests and then went to get some people and to show them where the nest is because <laughs> you know how we are so i'll remember right where that is i've memorized it i have that photographic memory come back and been unable to find the nest how, how small they, are they because i've heard they're pretty small they are uh, their little uh, eggs are like Peas, oh, and wow. you, you know how small hummingbirds are, so it's, they're just big enough to fit that little body, and they are like stretch pants to their nest, so they can get in there and stretch them out a little bit, and then they um, they will get a little bit smaller when the bird leaves, which uh, seems odd, but that's the way nature intended it, I guess. So they are extremely small, and they're made out of spider webs and lichens and things like that, so they will blend right in with the bark. So uh, they're very difficult to find. Uh, Are they usually on a branch, like farther up, or where do they, I mean, is there a certain place they put them? I find them on descending branches for the most part. Descending? What's that mean, descending? Uh, Branches that are just bending down a little bit. And I don't know that I've found them at any particular height. And when I say I've found them, I've been with other people that have found them too, Ah. and I just followed along and looked at it. But they they like those uh, that just kind of bend down. And it used to be... That we'd say, well, they're all pretty much on deciduous trees. That's where they they nest. Is just I I would say it's usually 
on deciduous trees and again on slender descending branches so you see them on oak or birch poplar hackberry but i have seen them on pine trees and i again boy anywhere from just over my head away so 10 feet up to maybe 40 feet above the ground and if you think of a large thimble those big thimbles the biggest one that your grandma had that would be about the size. And they also use dandelion down in them, so that's another thing. And it's just, um, she'll, she gets in there and she just wiggles around like a robin to make it form-fitting. But again, those walls remain pliable, so they will move a little bit. And it's just, they'll, one to three eggs, and they hatch in, what, uh, two weeks about. And then the little guys are in there for about 20 days, about three weeks after that. So great things to see. Um, folks, I hope you will come to the uh, the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always a Heimlich maneuver, and gravy is considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any of it. I stopped at the Rent-to-Own Cafe, we call it now, because so, let's face it, we just rent food. And I was telling everybody that I've read and heard, been told often, that if I'd spent $1 million every day since the day Jesus was born, I still wouldn't have spent $1 trillion. Oh. <laughs> uh, I haven't attempted to check the math on that. It just gives me a headache thinking about it. But it's apparent that spending $1 trillion is a real challenge. Well, I was going to get an oil change, but decided to get one for my car instead. Uh, my gut told me that was the right thing to do. And as I lounged in that uh, palatial, uh, relaxing waiting room in the garage, the mechanic came out and told me I needed a new air filter. And I said, is it? free filter Friday? It wasn't. So that air filter put me a step closer to spending that $1 trillion. Remember, folks, Heartland as well, we're driving past, and as I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, thanks for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get up there and look at a bird. Karen, I enjoyed your company as always. And everyone, thank you so much. It's a treat to hear from all of you. You have marvelous photos and questions, and, and I love your stories. Well, Al, it's great to chat with you. We'll be back next week with you. And uh, thanks again, and happy bird watching. Same deal. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Our good friend Al Bat, it is 1035.